Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 91. Fapla had taken a battering at the Battle of the Lomba River on the 3rd of October 1987. The SADF had crushed 47th Brigade and they had also dealt 21 Brigade a serious blow, as you've heard. Operation Modular had led to a mauling and the Angolans began withdrawing north. The South Africans had been victorious despite being hopelessly outnumbered and outgunned. The Rattles had somehow defeated the T-54s and T-55s. The Pretoria cabinet was delighted, but now faced a serious question that had not been fully addressed before the Lomba bloodletting. Now what? Fapla was withdrawing, but they weren't defeated. Furthermore, their logistics centre at Quito, Guanavali, was untouched and operating. The bridge the Rekis had destroyed was up and running once more. It was almost immediately that folks like the chief of the SADF, Yanni Helnes, knew consolidation of the gains was crucial, along with preventing the enemy from regrouping. By now, the political leadership had decided that they'd throw everything they could at this invasion into Angola. They'd gone too far to pull back. They'd grabbed the tiger by the tail and couldn't let go. For the Angolans, it was a bitter defeat, and the end of Fapla's Operation Saludando a Octobre, Salute to October, their grand offensive of four main brigades, which were supposed to seize Mavinga from Unita, then push on to Unita's HQ at Jamba and destroy the rebel movement once and for all. Not this time. And so, the 5,500 survivors withdrew to Quito, Quenavali. The next phase of Operation Modula was about to begin, where the South Africans would send their heaviest weapons and more troops into southern Angola. Pretoria's propaganda, meanwhile, was that there was no South African troop in Angola, despite the overwhelming evidence which you'll hear a little later from the Russians. It's a statement of the weakness of the political strategy that a nation pretends its forces are not involved in a conflict. It demotivates their own soldiers who are dying on foreign territory, at least those who are not specially trained special forces. There was going to be a long and bloody fight for control of Guito Guanavali that would last until the ceasefire in 1989. Russian advisers, who were part of Fapta's brigades on the Lomba and based in Quito, confirmed just how badly the Angolan army had been mauled. Igor Anatolyevich Zhdagin was on the ground in Quito when the battered 21st and 47th brigades staggered back. There on the Lomba, misfortune had befallen them, he wrote in his journal. They had been battered with shells from the rapid-firing guns of the South Africans. Russians had died, half a dozen at least, during this fight. Unita had also begun to turn the screws on Fapla and the Cuban and Russian allies and was sniping at the harried soldiers, bombarding them with mortars and ambushing their patrols. The SAD of Topras mulled what to do. 2-0 Brigade Commander Willy Mayer told his superiors that the operation was a success and Commandant Box Smith of 61 Mechanized Battalion agreed, saying the men should now go home. There were a number of options open to the SAD of right now. First, they could continue reinforcing the area around the Lomba and Unita could use this to jump off against Fapla, keeping them off balance. But that presumed the Angolan army would remain east of Quito Guanavali, which was not clear. The second was to form a brigade and then advance alongside Unita west of the Quito River to Quito Guanavali itself and attack. Unita already held most of the ground east of the Quito River, so this made some sense, particularly from a strictly military strategy point of view. The aim would be to seize Quito Guanavali as the main strategic town and then to hold it. But the South Africans would need more than a month to get their logistics and material together, and that would be more than enough time for Fampler to regather their strength. And it was going to be a very difficult assault, bloody, with many SAD of casualties likely to be registered. 
The political leadership definitely did not want photographs of dozens of body bags being shipped home to start circulating in local South African newspapers. The third option, which kind of split the difference between the first two, would be to immediately chase Fapla into Quito, then surround it, ensuring that the Angolan army was now well west of the Quito River. As I've mentioned, the perception amongst the SADF officer corps was that neither side held the initiative. However, given Fapla's overwhelming number advantage, they did. Everything that UNITA and the South Africans now planned was actually in response to Fapla's deployment, not the other way around. I'm sure some of the generals would disagree with this, but think logically about the situation. The SADF was vacillating about Quito as a target. What had compounded this confusion was a lack of proper information. SADF intelligence about the enemy's movements and intentions was porous. Radio intercepts were the main source, not the eyes on the ground, in spite of the recce's attempts at filling this gap. Vapla still had in the region of 12,000 troops across this part of southern Angola, whereas the SADF not more than 1,300. Vapla controlled the air above Quito and all the way to Mavinga, although the SAF force was proving more than useful in their continuous bombing raids, as I'll explain. On the 8th of October, Liebenbach ordered Mayer, who was based in Mavinga, to pursue the enemy and destroy them east of the Quito River before they could set up proper defensive positions there, and reinforcements would be sent from South Africa to bolster Mayer's numbers. It had taken Pretoria five days to decide what to do after the Battle of the Lomba on the 3rd of October, five days in which Fapla had time to reorder themselves. Vinita was busy bombing and harassing the Angolan army, but it was back to guerrilla warfare technique, not an organized advance by a mechanized army. Fapla's dominance in the air began to make its presence felt. On the 8th of October, two MiG-21s attacked 61 MiGs armored car squadron, and this time they came in low and fast. Usually, the MiGs would stay high, above 20,000 feet, to avoid UNITA's US-supplied Stinger missiles. But this time, they came in very low, copying the SA Air Force tactics and hit a rattle, killing one soldier and severely wounding another. This was the first time a MiG in a ground support role had hit an SADF vehicle and killed troops, but it wouldn't be the last. On the ground, 2-0 Brigade was joined by 4-side Battalion, a fully mechanized unit with extra G5 batteries, 4 self-propelled G6 guns, although one broke down, and most importantly, a squadron of 13 Ulifant tanks. Because these were to play such a significant role in the upcoming battles, I'll just spend a few minutes talking about their production. The Ulifants, or Elephants, were South Africa's main battle tank and based on Britain's Centurion tanks. Pretoria ordered 203 Centurions from the UK in 1953. These Centurions entered service between 1955 and 1958 and included about 17 armoured recovery vehicles. Then in 1972, the South African Army retrofitted some of its Centurions with the engines and transmissions of American-made M48 Patton tanks, and that was in an attempt to improve technical performance. But later, as sanctions began to bite, South Africa bought the Mark V versions from Jordan and India. An arms company we believe was based in Greece was the front for these purchases. Just out of interest, the same company had assisted in the sale of G5 guns to both Iran and Iraq during their eight-year war between 1980 and 1988. I should do an entire episode on the SADF procurement of arms and the amazing company Arms Corps, which manufactured quite high-tech systems throughout the period of sanctions levied against South Africa during apartheid. Back to the Olifant. Neither Jordan nor India were actually aware of the destination of the tanks they were selling. These had been scheduled for scrapping anyway. Then one day, 
a couple of dozen of these rusting hulks popped up on a ship in Durban Harbour. Because of the United Nations arms embargo, the Pretoria government, with help from Israel, France and the United States, began to develop a major arms industry. The Centurions were fitted with V12 fuel-injected engines, which meant they put out a significant 810 horsepower, coupled to a new three-speed automatic transmission, two forward gears, one reverse. This first attempt at upgrading the Centurion was codenamed Skokian, but only eight tanks were produced. Skokian, as all good South Africans know, is a dangerously alcoholic drink that is brewed in one day and sometimes features battery acid. It packs a significant punch, and that was the idea behind the Ulfant. The government then embarked on their Semmel project in 1974 and fitted the eight Skokian tanks with modified engines. Eventually, 35 of the Mark 5As, as they were known, were produced. Two years later, the Ulfant was born out of this process, and it was basically a new tank on an old chassis. The Ulfant Mark I entered service with the SA Armoured Corps in 1978, and Israeli engineers worked closely with the South Africans at this time. The Israelis were rebuilding the Centurions too in a project called SHOT, and one of the new features was a laser sight. They also spent quite a bit of time upgrading the engine, the suspension, the turret drive, and providing night vision equipment. One of the innovations was providing the command of these tanks with a handheld laser rangefinder, another contribution from Israel and happily co-opted by the South Africans. By 1983, the Mark 1A Ulifant had started production and went into service in 1985, just in time for the upcoming battles of Quito Guanavali. It was apparent from the mid-70s that the Ulifant's Mark 1 20-pound gun was woefully underpowered when facing the Soviet T-54s and T-55s. So the Mark 1A had a 105mm L7 rifled cannon and eight smoke grenade launchers on either side of the turret, a new engine and better armour. Crucially, they also had laser sighting capacity and night sights. So this first squadron was going to be joined by a second as the fighting around Quito Guanavali escalated. But there was still some pushback from the top brass. Army Commander Kat Liebenbach told 61 Max Boxsmith and Commander Dion Ferreira that no tank could be deployed without his say-so. The commanders on the ground thought this rule was, in a word, madness, so ended up deploying them when they felt like it, which was almost straight away. The South Africans were now going into a gunfight with a gun. On the 9th of October, more Russian advisers joined the 21st and 25th Brigades in Quito, Guanavali, and then set out south towards the Quito River Bridge. They rested at a point 11 kilometers along the old Portuguese road at the 25th Brigade command post. Early the next morning, this military column of vehicles swung off the old road and into the bush. The Angolans had learned from the South Africans to avoid using main roads. Now they were cutting alternative routes through the forest. T-54 and 55s were clanking along through this new road. Behind them, the entire column began to stretch out. It took them five hours to travel eight kilometers. By mid-morning on the 10th of October, UNITA soldiers bombarded this convoy with mortars and opened fire with small arms. The Russians, in particular, were shocked that this was happening so close to Quito Guanavali. It took them a few hours to cross the Shambinga River after they had driven into one of UNITA's notorious minefields, which slowed this column down once more. As the engineers worked out an alternative route, the men of Fapla's 25th Brigade endured UNITA's sniping at times. Then they stopped at the south bank of the Shambinga River just after 4 p.m. and settled down for the night. 
The artillery duels were going to become a daily occurrence because on the 11th of October, the SADF began bombarding Guido Guanavali and its airbase from long range, over 30 kilometers away. The Angolans then hurriedly moved their all-important aircraft and helicopters back to Manong. SA Air Force attacks also increased. They appeared mid-morning of the 11th over the Russian positions, and translator Igor Zhdokin wrote in his diary that the OSA AK anti-aircraft missile system tracked two and claims they hit a couple of planes. However, there is no record of this in the SADF archives for the 11th of October. You need to attack FAPA's vanguard once more, and a ferocious mortar artillery and small arms battle developed south of Quito, Quanavali for over half an hour. You need to withdrew when the Angolans began to outflank them. This FAPLA column halted for the night about 10 kilometers south of the old Portuguese road. At dawn on the 12th of October, UNITA renewed their attack on the 21st Brigade, still hunkered down waiting to move towards Mavinga once more. The Russians watched as FAPLA opened up with B-10 anti-tank recorders guns, 120mm mortars, BM-21 rockets and the fearsome and feared 40-barrel 120mm caliber automatic cannon which was bolted to the back of a Ural truck. Then one of these trucks was blown up when a UNITA mortar scored a direct hit. The SA Air Force Mirages made another appearance bombing the 21st Brigade vehicles. The Russians spent most of the afternoon monitoring the SADF radio. First they heard the South Africans discussing events of the day in English, then suddenly some began talking in Polish. The translators understood Polish better than English, but they couldn't make out both sets of speakers. The Russians thought that these were Polish comms specialists hired by the South Africans. We all met the Poles if you spent any time in the SADF at the time. Most of these had fled the Russian oppression in their homeland in the 70s and 80s and relocated to South Africa, which had built quite a name for itself as a place that fought communists. Of course, the Poles hated communism, and in particular the Soviet version. I'm not sure who these men were being tracked by the Russians on that hot day in October 1987, but it just goes to show how small this world is. Back in Pretoria, all of these little exchanges was not top of mind. A confusing series of orders now flowed across the army and other organizations. I'm going to try and explain what happened. Because Pretoria was now fighting a very complex internal war against the ANC and PAC, it had begun to unravel best military practice in what could be called a series of baffling decisions as the top brass prevaricated about Angola. At the same time, the South African state was actually running short of cash. Operation Modular was still active. Six weeks after it began, no sign of imminent success. FAPLA had been defeated at the Lomba, but by no means had they given up. Their October op was stymied, but columns began moving south once more. Roland de Vries, previously head of 61 MEC, now organized the Rattles for 2-0 SA Brigade HQ in Movinga. Up to now, the leadership had been squeezed into buffles. The structure of these operations was also baffling. Right at the top was SADF head Yanni Helnes, who controlled the war strategy. He concentrated on the political aspects and implications. Operational control was given to Kat Liebenbach of the Army HQ, but practical day-to-day control was really in the hands of Sector 2-0. It was also focusing on counterinsurgency ops in the Kavango region. So as the fighting escalated after September, 2-0 SA Brigade HQ under Dion Ferreira took over direct control of the fighting men. But there was another HQ at Rundu under Brigadier Johan Lowe. They weren't under Ferreira's command, but reported to Willy Meyer at Southwest Africa Command HQ in Vintuk, 
who then reported upwards to Army HQ back in Pretoria. So there were two distinct lines when there should have been one. As October fighting increased, another headquarters was going to be inserted. Elements of the South African 7th Division HQ headed up by Brigadier Fido Smith. What they were doing was anyone's guess. It was another layer of bureaucratic red tape overlaid across an already slightly confused reporting process. What happened was what happens everywhere when multi-layered bureaucrats fiddle with things, micromanaging contaminated decision-making. Who was supposed to make what decision began to be a bit of a mental matrix. Eventually, the Rundu HQ was pushed aside, but there were still too many chiefs and not enough Indians. Then, when the urge took them, Geldenhuis, Liebenbach and Mayer thought it would be an excellent idea to fly into the front and then to interfere in minute tactical decisions. They were worried about Fapla pulling back further north towards Manong before there could be dealt a final blow, and now Kuito Kwanavali featured more regularly in their correspondence. If the SEDF could take Kuito Kwanavali, they would cut off the brigades still based south of the strategic town. On the 13th of October, the SA Air Force raided 21st and 59th Brigades, who opened up with all their arms at the low-flying mirages. AA guns, AKs, even RPGs. The entire sky looked like a rainbow, reported Russian translator Igor Zhidokin. He also noted in his diary that one plane was hit, but the SA Air Force disputes this too. The rest dropped their bombs in disorder and made off. It is true that this first raid at 0430 was ineffective. There would be three more raids on that day, on the 21st and 59th Brigade, another at noon, then 1,500 hours, and finally 1,700. Fapla Columns reported little damage and camped that night at an old UNITA base. We could see the huts, which were still intact, and with their communication trenches and so forth. A real fortress, I would say, notes the Russian. During a search, the Angolans and Russians came across a large storehouse in this abandoned base at the source of the Kunzumbia River and found a large ammunition dump of Chinese manufactured weapons. These included more than 100 shells for 60mm mortars, another 100 or so for 81mm mortars, dozens of modified anti-tank grenade launchers or RPG-7Vs, and 15,000 cartridges for the updated Kalashnikov submachine gun known as the AKM. That was quite the haul, and shows how the world powers had been fiddling in southern Africa's backyard, offloading their munitions for decades and helping turn the subcontinent into a Cold War playground. This FAPLA reinforcement column finally reached 21st Brigade Command Post on the 15th of October 1987, where the Russians met with their countrymen who'd borne the brunt of the SEDF attacks on the 3rd of October at the Battle of the Lomba. Their reports were full of horrors. During the Mavinga Offensive, a lot of hope had rested on the Angolan 2nd Tactical Group, of which 47 Brigade belonged. It had been reinforced with a tank battalion, artillery and anti-aircraft missile defence systems. The 47th had been sent to shore up the right flank of Fapla's assault and was commanded by Major Tobias, who was Chief of Staff of the 6th Military District. And the Battle of the Lomba, as you know, had been an ominous sign for the future for the Angolans. The group wasn't up to the task writes Igor Zhidokin. He heard stories of how the Angolan commanding officers spent a lot of time before the attack drinking, that the offensive was sluggish, that FAPLA troops were unenthusiastic, despite the fact that the South Africans and UNITA were heavily outnumbered and they knew it. Then they crossed the Lomba River. The 21st felt they were triumphant at first until they had been pulverized and chased north. The South Africans, seeing the mistakes and miscalculations of FAPLA, 
openly penetrated the territory of Angola. This was the beginning of the operation's downfall. The beginning of a tragedy is how he viewed the Lomba battle. His Russian colleagues had died, and the survivors did not hold back. The report was chilling for the Soviets. What was not reported by Fapler's political propaganda machine at the time, and which we now know is true, was that their logistics had been so badly prepared that they'd run out of ammunition. But there was something even more fundamentally wrong with the Angolan army than their poor management. The officer corps, said Zhidokin, suffered from cowardliness. There were other reasons that the Russians noted for the disaster at the Lomba, that the orders were confused, that the soldiers were terrified of the SEDF, and finally, that once the bridge had been constructed across the Lomba, word got out to all units on the south, and it became a chicken run for Fapla troops, whose nerve had snapped. Perhaps the most telling comment, folks, is this, and it's verbatim. Many Soviet specialists serving here in the district combat brigades had been in Afghanistan and had never experienced such horrors before. When the South African artillery began to fire, I felt particularly terrified. The Taliban were medieval in comparison, sending human meat bombs as suicide teams into Russian positions, now and again firing a Stinger missile or two, or trying to cut down Russians using AKs and machine guns. In comparison, the SEDF was more like the Ukrainian army facing the Russians. Then came the South African Air Force, continues Zhidakin, and we had very little room on the ground. They were squeezed against the lumber. This confirms the SA Air Force reports of their bombs finding their mark. But the worst was, when the Angolans turned to flight and began to throw away their equipment, what of 47th Brigade, who had been mauled south of the Lomba? Zhidakin was even more horrified by reports from his surviving colleagues. Things had been fine, they said, while the commander of the tank battalions remained in contact with the 47th. When the commander, whose name was Silva, apparently was wounded inside his T-54, he managed to crawl out to another tank, which was then hit as well by the SADF rattles. The platoon tank commander in the T-54 then jumped out and ran away, leaving the wounded battalion commander inside, and Unita apparently captured him. The damage was confirmed by the Russians. 18 tanks, 20 armoured troop carriers, 4 D-31 22mm guns, 3 BM-21 rocket launchers, 4 OSA-AK mobile rocket launchers, 2 OSA-AK transport cars, 1 P-19 radar station, a host of heavy trucks, their broadcasting comms station, hundreds of mortar rounds, grenade throwers, and more than 200 AK-47s. The loudly proclaimed promises by the Angolans that the Russian advisers would be kept safe were forgotten. A BTR-60 armoured troop carrier of the Soviet advisers had tried to flee over the same bridge being used by the 21st on that fateful day. They were shot up but managed to escape, terrified as they were chased by a Rattle 90. The Soviet advisers abandoned their troop carrier, which was then blown up by the Rattle. Then they crawled, hugging the ground for one and a half kilometers through the open ground of the Lomba Shona, under fire continuously. The South Africans spotted this group in particular, and they realized it was the Russians that began to hit the area with mortars. Some exploded only meters away. By now, the dozen or so Russians watched some of these mortars plunge into the greasy, muddy holes, failing to explode. It was so swampy. Nothing like this had happened to them in Afghanistan, because this was an African war. The Angolan commissioner who was supposed to organize the bridge crossing crossed first and then ran away. At least, 
That's what the Russians say. There was panic and confusion. The South Africans were shooting all over the place, not sparing ammunition. No one knew clearly whether to run or what to do. The huge pile of material destroyed is testament to this battle's ferocity. Only three Strela 10AA systems, two armoured troop carriers, two EE-25 vehicles and one Land Rover belonging to Fapla crossed the Lomba Bridge on that day. Everything else was destroyed or captured. Another telling comment by the Russians is this. They say had the SADF sent just one company over the Lomba River at that stage and opened fire on the Angolans, the entire 47th Brigade would have landed at the bottom of the Lomba, as Igor Zhidakin puts it. As we know, the SADF stopped because the men were exhausted, but also because the top brass were confused about what they should really do next. When we return next episode, we'll hear about a briefing in Rundu and how a CIA message delivered to Pretoria would help make up Army Chief Kat Liebenberg's mind about Guito Kwanavali. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, do Svidanya. Mm-hmm.